True love is having someone's greatest need as your highest concern. That's one of the simplest <clears throat> definitions for true love that you can ever find. The selfless promotion of others is applying God directly to that person. Let me say that again. The selfless promotion of others ahead of yourself is applying God directly to that person. It is the only surefire way that, that you'll ever make sure that your faith works. That kind of love. Otherwise, you're selfish and self-centered. Faith doesn't work without the selfless promotion of others. It has to be there. I read a story years ago. A lady had written a, a memoir of her life. She was 101 years old, and she lived in North Carolina. And she told the story of how she first met her husband of, of about 65 or 68 years before he perished. They were dating. And in that day, they were not allowed to uh, go out on a date, nor could they. They lived up in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, and he would just come over and sit on the front porch on a Saturday afternoon. And they'd sit out there and they'd swing and they'd dream. And they'd talk about plans for the future. They'd talk about where they wanted to go to school and, and what they wanted to accomplish and where they'd build a house and all these wonderful things that would go on in their life. And it, it became a very special time. And then one evening while he was there, he just wanted to express his feelings for her because all he'd ever done was he held her hand twice and he didn't dare even kiss her because he knew her parents were right on the other side of the curtains watching. But this night it grew dark and he felt very passionate and he got to the steps to leave and she walked toward him and he said, I want you to know that I love you more than the heights and the depths of the world and he said, I would die for you, you're everything to me. Uh, literally, I'd swim the ocean to be with you, I'd climb the highest mountain and then he leaned over and he kissed her and he ran down the steps and turned around and looked back and he said, and I'll be here next Friday if it doesn't rain. I think that that's a good summation of some people's love. It's, it's, it's passion, but it's no compassion. You say what you feel, but you really don't act on it. And love is much more than that. Your love is how people know you're a Christian. It's not by the money you give, it's not by the actions that you show, but it's by the love that you show. And, and Scripture says primarily the love you, so, you show to the brethren. Because that love will draw you to love that which is broken in the world even more. You'll care about those who are hurting. You'll help those who need that renewed spirit of life. You become the evidence of who Christ Jesus is. So I want to think for a little bit this morning about that kind of love and how we avoid having the wrong kind of love, the dangerous kind of love. Now, first I want you to know that the, the greatest enemy to love is deadly. It is the root problem of many of us who have fallen away from understanding what true love is. It's the direction that some people go when they describe love in their own terms and not in God's terms. So I want to go right to the passage that tells us what love really is. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 6 tells us this, and this is what love is not. It says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will become Lovers of their own selves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying 
its power, and from such people turn away. This is what love is not. And if you notice, they have a form of godliness. That that means they have the image on the outside, but they deny the power. And you see, the power of God that you have within you is the love you have for one another. Love has to constrain you. Otherwise, all the good things you do are out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of love. No one wants to be taken care of by someone that's doing it out of a sense of duty. We want to feel that sense of love. I can remember as a little child, my brother and I would sit, well, for a few years we sat next to each other, and then when we got to be about five, they had to separate us, and and now we're separated by about eight, eight hours' drive. But I can remember when we'd be together, and my mother could not pass our high chairs without showing some form of affection to us. She just couldn't do it. And she just felt that way. I can remember going to bed as a little boy, and my brother and I had twin beds side by side. And many times before we'd go to sleep, the door would open, and my mother or my dad would look in just to make sure we were there. I thought maybe it was because they loved us. Maybe they were afraid we were going to crawl out the window and disappear. Who knows? But love has a focus that is so special you can feel it. There's the evidence of it in a realistic way. And, and you know that. You understand that. The power is there in love, and it makes a difference. You know, it says, for men will be lovers of themselves or lovers of oneself. And that is so true today because people focus on that. The greatest enemy of love, you've guessed it by now, is selfishness, self-centeredness. Selfishness is the source of all the world's trouble. It's a reason right now that we're all a nervous wreck for the people halfway around the world. Because Russia is a giant country. It does not need any more land or space. It does not need any more people. It can't take care of the, the ones they've got. But, but one man has made a decision that he will go in and have conquest and conquer another land. And how sad that is for them because there are innocent people there, many innocent people that that have done nothing wrong in life, and now suddenly their world is being destroyed because of selfishness. Selfishness is the source of all the world's troubles. Look at what it leads to in life. Selfishness comes in so many different forms. It's frightening. And I want to think about that. As one theologian put it, he said, he said the root of selfishness, the sin of selfishness is this. He said it's it's my will and not thy will be done. It's putting yourself on the throne of everything that's done and, and understanding that. You know, you, you can want to do good things and you can use that image of good things and still misuse it for yourself. I uh, read a story in a, a magazine the other day about a mom that was teaching her children how to pray. And she taught them that, that they should always pray, first of all, about their relationship with God. Are they clean and pure? Have they gotten forgiveness for their sins? And then the last thing they pray for is to ask for things from God. But make sure you pray for others and lift them up. And she said that they were driving to the McDonald's, and they're about two blocks away, and there was a wreck before they got to the McDonald's. And her five-year-old was sitting there, and she looks and she sees what's going on, and their, their car's wrecked, and their ambulance is pulling up, and there's all sorts of activity going on. And, and she wanted to encourage her kids to pray, and so she looked at her five-year-old, and she said, Timmy, don't you think this is a good time to pray? And he says, yes, ma'am. And he bowed his head, and he said, he said, please, God, don't let those cars block the entrance to the McDonald's. 
Now, that, that's, that's what I'm talking about, selfishness. And we do that sometimes. We, we worry about people interfering with our convenience in life. I've actually stood over the bed of someone that had just died, and I've heard family members actually say, what a terrible time to die. And it messed up something they had scheduled. Reality is, number one, that person didn't want to die. Number two, God made that choice. So often we let our selfishness get caught up in the, everything. Now, How do you overcome that? How do you become a person who can conquer that sense of selfishness? Because after all, we live in a world that's very selfish. In fact, uh, most of the products we're sold, we are taught that they're all about us because we're just that important. But the reality is, even though we are so important that Jesus died on the cross for us, we have to realize that we're all sinners. We're broken. We have all sorts of issues we struggle with. And we are not perfect by any stretch. And because of that, we have to follow a different model. And it's simply this, and that's your second point. Jesus is a model for us of how to live the selfless life. What we call it is servant leadership. It means that you're someone who leads, but you don't lead for the power, you don't lead for the glory, you lead because you're servant, as an example to others. A servant leader is a person who follows God, but always, always serves wherever they are. They're going to give their life away in a very special way. Selfishness is all about being first in everything. But servant leadership means that you're standing there helping others move forward. There's nothing wrong with, with wanting to do our best, but it is wrong to enjoy seeing others fail so we can succeed. Every once in a while, we'll see a track meet, and someone will stumble and fall. And another runner, out of a sense of empathy and love and servant leadership, will slow down and help that person up and help them across the line. We've seen that a few times in life, and it stood out as such a powerful image of what God wants to do. All forms of selfishness are bad, and we have to be careful about that. You know, in 930 B.C., the son of Solomon came to the throne, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam did many foolish things, but of many, the many foolish things he did, there's one in particular that stood out. He consulted with the, the older people, the wiser people in the community, and he talked to the younger people. And he took the advice of the younger people. In doing so, he split the kingdom. He divided it in half. And at that point, in 930 B.C., a lot of things changed. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, the ten tribes uh, in the northern kingdom, were taken away. The Assyrians took them away after 120 years of prophets telling them to repent. Telling them that they were selfish and self-centered. Telling them that their prosperity was killing them. Now the southern kingdom didn't go that way. They, they went into bondage in Babylon uh, about 180 years later. But they came back, by and large, in 70 years from that bondage. Northern kingdom never came back again. In fact, we, we call those the, the, the ten vanishing tribes because we never see them again in history. By and large. 
I used to struggle about why God would take one group, I mean literally a kingdom divided in half, and you take one group and he would allow them to go into bondage and then come back and reoccupy the land and repent. But the other group disappeared. They were destroyed. In fact, the prophets Amos and Hosea tell us of their end, and it was sad. They were destroyed, all of them. And I struggle with why God would do that, but it's very simple. There were two sins that the northern kingdom had that the southern kingdom did not practice. Two sins. And these two sins literally are the pivotal point of God's judgment going against them. And he was so angry in his wrath, he destroyed them. And it was simply two things. Number one, they stole from poor people. The poorest in the land they took from. And the second thing they did, they sacrificed their children to Molech the pagan God. I struggle with that because I realize several things. Number one, we in America have sacrificed over 60 million of our unborn. Most were sacrificed because people did not want the inconvenience of raising a child. It came at the wrong time. And they didn't consider that child was not theirs, it was God's. But we also take from poor people. We do that in so many different ways. I listen, I listen to radio a lot when I'm driving. I get so frustrated when somebody comes on there with a sincere voice. And they very calmly say, Listen, that house that you own, that equity you have, it's yours to use. You can get it out and we'll loan you money for it. We'll loan you 125% of what your house is worth. Now, what they mention in the very quick wording at the end is it might cost them 25% interest or more to do that, and the fees and everything will cause them to be back further broke than they were when they bought the house. Now, we know it's foolish. We listen to that, but many people live in debt all of their lives. The bone of contention in most divorces today is not the division of assets, but the division of liabilities because most young people for the first 15 years of their marriage stay in debt. We live that way. But sacrificing our children is what breaks my heart in America. There's another form of harmful selfishness going on in America. The sexual perversion in America is an example of our sin that God's going to judge us for. You cannot outlive your sin. There, 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 there is no statute of limitations on that. What you did when you were young, you will pay for when you're old one day, when you stand before God. God does not forget what we've done. I was reading some, some statistics last night that, that amazed me. When you think of sexual abuse in America today, and it's very, very prominent all over America today, 66% of all prostitutes are victims of child sexual abuse. 36.7% of all women in prison were abused as children. One-third of abused children will later abuse their own children. And get this, this is what's staggering. 94% of all sexual abuse victims are under the age of 12 the first time they're abused. We live in a broken world, and it's not getting any better, and people hide. Even the church hides when there's sex abuse. 
Many years ago, I had a situation in my church, and I've shared with you before, where I had a music and youth minister. He had every reason for people to, to trust him. He'd never done anything that we had ever seen. We did background checks and everything when we hired him. But something just wasn't right. And one day I received a call from an adult male who simply told me these words. He said, Pastor, I don't know you, but your youth and music guy molested me repeatedly when I was 12 years old. I grew up in a single-parent home. My mother was a DeKalb County policewoman. And that man took advantage of me. I told him, I said, I want to believe you, but I need you to write down everything that you've told me, and I want you to have it notarized and send it to me. And he did. The next day, I got an express mail package from Florida from him. I didn't fire the man. I, I, I handed him a pad and I said, you write out your own resignation and then after that we're going to proceed to do everything we can to prosecute you because I don't want you to ever do this again. He admitted to me that he did that. He said, that was years ago. I've stopped. And I told him, I said, do you know what the, re the, the, the rate of repeat of child molesters is in America? 100%. I said, I don't anymore believe you're healed in anything. And, and, and that happened in 2006, and I am still pursuing that man. In fact, Elaine can tell you, I got a phone call last year from the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and two lawyers that represent the convention wanting to know about that event because it sprang up in a, in a prominent paper here in the United States again, and my name was mentioned. I think we need to do everything we can to protect our children and let God know that we love the fact that He loves us and we love them. And we don't need to worry about what people will think of us. The church should be a place that protects children. But unfortunately today, about 1.5% of those in ministry among Southern Baptists have been convicted or either have been accused of child molesting. We've got a problem. We don't understand what real love is all about. And we've got to change. All this begins when somebody is selfish. Human greed is the great sin that destroys us. And we have this very limited time on earth to prove that we're a child of God and to, to reach out to others and, and dispense the hope that can change their heart forever. And then the window is closed and the door is shut and we pass into eternity and we're judged for what we do down here. Why we do so little, I cannot say. Sometimes we wait till it's almost too late, but if we can't protect the most innocent ones among us, we are not doing what Jesus did when He was here on earth. There's another crisis we're dealing with in America today and it, as I mentioned earlier, it's the crisis of debt. We don't understand the importance of what's going on. We don't realize that Satan uses debt to bind us and restrict us and destroy us. Be careful what you want in life. Because what you want can absorb you and destroy you. A country church was having a revival one time, and as they were going through the revival, each night the same man would come down front, and he'd cry, and he'd say, Fill me, Lord, fill me. 
He did that the first night, the second night, the third night. The fourth night came, and here he goes down front again, and a little boy leans over to his granddaddy, and he says, you know what, I think that fellow leaks a little bit, don't you? That feeling isn't lasting. That's the way some of us are. We want God to fill us, but we don't want to be someone that's prepared to hold his blessings and be held accountable for them. And that's what love is. Love is being there and taking care of someone and loving someone when it really matters. Jack Wright had a surgery last week. Broke his hip, tore up his shoulder. They were able to fix his hip, and we don't know what they're, they're going to do with his shoulder, but he's hopefully coming home Monday. I sat in the room and I watched those, those two interact They've been married way beyond 50 years, 60 plus years, and it's just amazing to see them together. Martha, as a child, had polio, and it was rough, as anybody who's had polio understands. But I watched her so skillfully and lovingly take care of Jack, and I've seen him be there with her when she was going through her struggles. And that image to me is what love really is. It's giving when there's nothing else to give. That's what God expects of us. When all's said and done, it's really not what we have, but it's what we demonstrate in love that makes the difference. Be careful who you're advertising for in your life, because sometimes in life we forget what God has called us to do. Remember this, Jesus' love never fails. It never fails. The end of this passage says that very plainly. Even if those who you thought would be there for you are not there, go and take care of them. Even those that you thought would be your friends forever, if they've drifted away from you, reach out to them. Show them that grace. Mark 12, 29 says this, said, Jesus answered them, says, The first of all the commandments is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he said, This is the first commandment, and the second is like unto it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's a test that psychologists used to give in college many years ago. It's called a narcissism test. They read people's statements like these, and here's some of the statements right off of the test. I like to be in the center of attention, yes or no. I show off if I get a chance because I'm extraordinary, yes or no. Somebody should write a biography about me, yes or no. What's amazing is they're judged not by whether they say yes or no, but sometimes they're given extra points if they scratch through some of those things in frustration because they, they wouldn't even think of that. Amazingly, the median score has risen 30 points in the last 10 years. It's off the charts what they're seeing among our college students. And I'll tell you something. There's nothing wrong with self-confidence. There's nothing wrong with believing in yourself, but if you believe in yourself to the point that it's unreasonable, you've lost touch with reality. You have to go back and recheck yourself and say these words, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me, not through myself. 
And that's what God requires of us. Make sure you have love, but have the right kind of love. And then you can change the world. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much that you speak to us in terms that are not confusing or frustrating. They're real. And I pray right now that we would hear your voice and we would see your hand directing us in where we should go. For truly, obedience is what you called us to be and to do. Lord, help us to understand that sometimes our biggest problem is not our talents and our abilities, but it's our inability to see your grace and your mercy and love others as you love them. God, help us to do that today. Give us an understanding of what you would have us to do. And let us be willing to say yes. Father, speak to someone today who's searching and seeking truth. May they find it. May they understand the direction you would have them to go. And may they have the peace in obeying you. And find that pathway that only a servant leader can discover. And we pray all this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.